You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. As most of you know, we've talked about rest for the last two or three weeks, I guess. Rebecca was in here talking about uh, rest as a form of trust, and then Cameron spoke about rest as something that sort of gives us perspective and allows us to sort of distance ourselves from our circumstances. Today, I'd like to talk about rest as a glimpse or a vision of heaven. Um, I think it's kind of awkward to be up before you today because I am very bad at resting in general. I'm a terrible rester. Um, I sometimes put it on my calendar. I plan for it. I work ahead so that I don't feel guilty or unproductive. And then Sunday afternoon comes and I feel like so antsy sitting on the couch, right? It's like hard not to check email or to work ahead for the next week or to try to catch up on stuff that you've been trying to do for two weeks and now you've got this two hours you've set aside and how could you just sit there and rest um, in the midst of that. I think even when I do sit down to take a nap or read or whatever, I'm trying to do like the best resting possible, right? Like I'm trying to have the take the best nap I can or like make the biggest dent in this book or article that I can. I have some half sheets for you guys who are coming in now. Five, great. Um, I sometimes feel like if I'm not like making this huge dent in the book I'm reading, then it's like been a failed rest period, right? Like I can't get distracted at all. Um, and I think resting probably presents a lot of you guys with similar conundrums, right? If you have kids, um, sometimes it's hard to rest at all, I imagine. Um, if you have jobs that maybe ask you to work awkward hours, then it's hard to like rest in, um, in a way that's sort of synergistic with the rest of your family or the rest of your um, friends or social circle or things like that. Uh, in general, I think we can all probably say that resting is hard, right? Um, but that said, we know that resting is crucially important. People say that after a week of getting like six hours or so, maybe a little less than six hours of sleep, um, your reflexes and brain functions decrease to that of somebody who's maybe a little bit inebriated, right? Um, and if you have kids, have worked with kids, or have ever been a kid, you know that uh, when people get tired, the emotional fuse starts to get ever shorter, right? And that effect doesn't really ever go away the older you get. I find myself as a 26-year-old person thinking, like if my wife asked me to, you know, do something and I haven't had a lot of sleep, I'm a lot more likely to just sort of be a little more sharp in my response to her. Um, <clears throat> additionally, getting less than six hours of sleep a night or resting not enough puts you at risk for some physical, real health issues, right? Certain types of cancers have an increased risk factor if you um, sort of build a body of work over the course of your life that has you getting less than six hours of sleep. Certain types of dementia are more likely if you get uh, not enough rest as well down the road. And so it's almost as if God has created for us rhythms of work and of rest, of seed time and of harvesting, right? Uh, as the writer of Ecclesiastes puts it, there's a season for everything, a time for everything, rest included. 
in that. <clears throat> um, so again, today, we'll talk about rest as a picture of heaven, as something that's important for us as Christians especially, and something that has added significance for God's people. But before we do that, we probably should define some terms, specifically rest and heaven. Um, these are really broad words that I think it's important for us to put a fine point on today. So rest is not just like crashing on the couch and flipping on NFL Sunday ticket and just like zoning out, right? Like that's not necessarily what the Bible means when it says rest. What the Bible means when it says rest is something close to the feeling of being at home, right? The feeling of peace and tranquility, that things are as they should be, that uh, all the coats are on the coat rack, all the book bags are in their right spot, your you know desk is straightened up, that everything is peaceful and tranquil, there are no barriers in your relationships, everybody's square and on the same page. Rest is a fullness of peace and tranquility between us, between our families, between our relationship with the outside world and in our relationship with the Lord Jesus as well. So that's what we're working with rest. Rest as a sort of fullness of peace and tranquility. Secondly, heaven is not in the Bible just this sort of like spirit world that your soul like goes off to to float around in forever. Um, heaven eventually will be right here. Right in Revelation 19 through 22, we get this picture of a restored and recreated earth and universe that God has come back to to make completely new, right, and to recreate, to remove sin's effects from, and to bring us back right here. Now, that has a ton of meaning for us as Christians, and we'll talk about that a little later. But it's important for us to see heaven as a restoration of all that is here before us today. Heaven is something that is um, a place where all of this is made perfect. Um, In fact, the only difference, I think, between the new heavens and the new earth, and the earth as we see it now, uh, is that sin and all of its effects will be no longer. Right? We read of Jesus coming back and wiping every tear from his people's eyes, removing all sickness, all death, all pain. Think of the Garden of Eden only a whole lot better and more full. So, speaking of the Garden of Eden, it's probably best that we start there in thinking about what it means to rest and what rest looks like as a picture of heaven. Um, God's plan for rest is laid out right in the first two chapters of the Bible before sin enters the creation. We see, uh, we get a lot of our vision of what the new heavens and the new earth will look like or at least the foundation of that vision from what God's creation looks like before sin enters into it and fractures it. So to do that, let's look real quick at how God arranged the creation days. Uh, Sort of structure emerges as we look at these seven days. Um, If you've got a half sheet, you've got a little fun chart here um, that'll help guide us. So the six days can be split into two sort of triads of days, with a capstone being the seventh day. So the first triad, you have days one, two, and three, which are 
you know, sort of God's forming of his creation. God takes all of the like places in which things will live and dwell and fashions them. So on day one, we have darkness and light or night and day. On day two, we have the sky and the waters. Uh, think mostly of like big oceans, probably. Um, and then day three, we have seas and land and vegetation. So seas probably closer to something like a lake and then the land that we live on here. And then days four through six correspond pretty closely to days one through three. So day four gives us the things that will live in the domain of day one. So we have the sun and the moon and other heavenly lights like stars, things like that, that reside in the darkness and in the light. Does that make sense? Are y'all tracking? So, um, on day five, we get birds and water animals that correspond to the domains day two, the sky and the big bodies of water. And then on day six, we see man and land animals created to live in the domain that was created in day three, namely the land. So <clears throat> we have here two triads that leave us with one day. Right there is uh, one day that's left off on its own island, right? It's almost as if God, in creating the world, has separated the seventh day and said, something special's going on here, right? We've got like two sections of three. They fit together generally pretty well. And then on the seventh day, something's different, right? <clears throat> so, in short, the seventh day, I think, is the finish line of God's creation. This is supposed to be the fullness of everything that God's done. Obviously, on the seventh day, God stops working. And on this seventh day is really where God is supposed to live with his people for the rest of time. Um, God creates things and says, this is good, right? God spoke the light into being and he said, the light is good. God spoke animals into being and said, these animals are good. When God creates the seventh day, he doesn't only say that it's good, he says that it's holy or that it's set apart from the other six days. So he's drawing special attention to this. And as we progress through the whole creation account, we're building towards this seventh day, right? We have the domains on the first three days and then the lower animals that will live in those domains. And then on day six, we get Adam and Eve made in the image of God, right? Things are obviously on an upward trajectory here. And then on the seventh day, <clears throat> we see God's Sabbath rest with his people. Um, the cash value, really, of being made in the image of God is that you are created to be in relationship with God. <clears throat> and you're meant to be in that relationship with God in the context of his peaceful Sabbath rest, right? Uh, the seventh day is supposed to be the context in which God's people live with God for the rest of time. Um, <clears throat> in the Garden of Eden, God's ultimate goal is to live with his people in his house, in his creation, <clears throat> in a restful and worshipful environment, an environment where Adam and Eve feel no chaos, right? No disjunction. There's no stress in their relationship. 
There's no stress in their relationship between each other, between them and the Lord. Adam and Eve are meant to live in this peaceful, tranquil garden to subdue the rest of the earth and to do it in full, rich communion with God Himself until everything is subdued. Um, Imagine this just for a second, right? No stress, no worry, no concern. Everything's in the right place. There's nothing that's weighing on your shoulders, nothing that is taking an undue amount of brain power to figure out. If only this were where the story ended, right? Um, we got a lot of the Bible left, which means like things don't really stay this way. Um, so, of course, Adam and Eve sin. They're in this restful, peaceful, tranquil environment, and they eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the only tree that God has asked them not to eat from, and they are removed from the garden. And it's not just that they've lost the garden, that they've lost this lush paradise where God is living with his people and where the fruit grows without any issue, right? Um, Adam and Eve have lost their direct relationship with God as well. So for the rest of the Bible, God's goal for humanity is to have us back in his house in relationship with him. Um, From the Eden episode forward, God is pursuing his people. He's moving after his people, pulling them back to himself to bring them back into his presence. Um, We can take a look even at the tabernacle or the temple um, from the end of Exodus onward. This is a way for God to live in the midst of his sinful people, right? God will live in the tabernacle later on in the temple. And um, that's what we've got in terms of God living in the midst of folks who are very sinful by nature. Right, God can't be around sin, so he has cordoned himself off in the temple, but at the same time lives among his people. Um, the priests and the people, through their sacrifices, get to commune with God there. They wash off their sins, not through the sacrifices themselves. Those point to Jesus. It's Jesus that cleanses them sort of retroactively. Um, but the people get to commune with God in their midst in a real and special way, not in a sort of God-is-everywhere way, which is very true, but in a special way, God's people get to meet with Him in the temple through these sacrifices. <clears throat> However, the story doesn't end there either. Right? We've got this nice temple. The Israelites are meeting with God. They're following His laws, all this stuff. And then things start to go very downhill after David, right? The people uh, sin greatly, they're exiled from the land, and their temple is destroyed. On down the road, that means that God's presence has left them. It's not just that a building doesn't have a stone left on top of the other. It means that God's presence with his people is no longer there. Um, They ultimately get to come back with one Nehemiah, and they rebuild the temple. And the men who see the temple, who had seen the first temple, weep because the temple they've just built doesn't live up to the former temple's glory. Right? Something is still missing here. Right? Even though God has told his people to rebuild the temple, 
God has promised his people that he will come back and live among them, something's still missing here, right? The book bags aren't all on the hooks. The coats aren't in the coat closet. There's still some stress, a lot of stress, in fact. The Israelites will go on, and they'll be back in their land, but right around 1200 B.C., they'll be in the land and ruled by the Romans, and that's where we'll pick up in the New Testament. Even when they're in the land, the people of Israel are not able to live with God in the way that they were supposed to live with God in the Garden of Eden. Even though everything seems like it should be right, there's still something that's fractured in their experience. They're still not experiencing this rest. They're still busy. They're still unsettled. They're not where they want to be. They're not at peace. They're not experiencing this fullness of tranquility. <clears throat> so that's where we leave the Old Testament, no matter how you read it, whether you read it and end at Second Chronicles or you read it and end at Malachi. The people of Israel, God's people, are left unsettled. But then something happens, right? A, a small baby is born in a manger in Bethlehem, and John tells us in John 1 that that person is God himself dwelling or tabernacling above us, right? He's trying to sort of kick Israel's imagination back to God being in the people's midst in the tabernacle. And he's saying, this is what you've been waiting for. That was a symbol. That was a blueprint. This is the house. God is among you, dwelling among his people, tabernacling and living among those who love him. <clears throat> and so Jesus comes, he repairs this relationship that's been broken between God's people and God by paying for the sins which remove these very people from the Garden of Eden in the first place. <clears throat> he dies for our sins, and then he sends the Holy Spirit to unite us with Christ and to live inside of us so that God lives, in a sense, closer to his people. Right? We are still experiencing, I think, some like already and not yet friction here. Like already Jesus has come. Already Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to us, and we experience that in a very real way, right? When you read the Bible or pray or come to church, hang out with other Christians, do Bible study, whatever. We experience some of this already, and then there's some not yet, and that we still sin. We still experience this sickness. We still experience death, things like that. So, of course, the story is not yet finished. We still don't live in perfect community with God. We're unsettled at times, right? Feel some chaos. We still sin. We're not in perfect, peaceful Sabbath rest with God. And that doesn't come until Revelation 19 through 22 when God comes back to earth, Jesus' second coming, <clears throat> when God will be in our midst and there will really be no more sickness, sadness, pain, or death. Every time we rest, every time we take a Sabbath break, maybe not a whole day, um, every time we contemplate or meditate or think of what things will be like soon when God lives in our midst even more fully and completely than he does now. We're picturing heaven, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians that every time we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes, right? There's sort of a, um, a, a contemplation when you take communion on what things will be like when Jesus is with us at this marriage supper of the Lamb from Revelation 19, what things will be like in the new heavens and the new earth when we're no longer separated from Jesus by you know, whatever space-time thing is going on here. Whenever you take a Sabbath, whenever you rest with your family, by yourself, whatever, every time you do that, you're sort of pulling into the present or contemplating on what heaven will be like, what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, this peaceful rest with God, or at least a shade of that, right? Um, Busyness, chaos, you know, things like that, unsettledness, are walls that keep us away from God, right? Busyness is often what keeps us from resting, right? I can't sit down and pray or read the Bible or spend time with the Lord because I've got too much other stuff to do, right? Um, That is a wall that separates us from God. And in the new heavens and the new earth, that wall will be gone. And so every time you're able to take a small rest period, spend time with the Lord, what have you, you're able to sort of cast forward into the new heavens and the new earth. This is only a slice of what heaven will be like. So I guess as we sort of finish up here, it's, uh, it's my contention that it's worth the effort uh, to try to invest in a little discipline of rest on Sunday or Saturday or whenever it works out for your family, right? I am not naive enough to assume that with kids it's so easy to sort of like sit on the couch and be peaceful for like five minutes even. Um, but I think it is worthwhile to try to steal away for a time. It doesn't have to be a whole day um, to really spend time with the Lord and to experience this fellowship with God that we'll have in an even fuller and more complete sense at the last day. Um, You can spend time praying that you haven't been able to spend earlier in the week. You can spend time reading God's Word that you haven't been able to spend earlier in the week. You can spend time serving your kids or your spouse or your roommate that you haven't spent earlier in the week. This rest is supposed to free you up, not to be a burden. Um, And it looks forward to a time when you get to spend all your time with God among other relationships and when you're able to serve each other without um, any friction in relationships. You don't need to start with a whole day. It's not like if you can't carve out all of Sunday to rest, to Sabbath, to spend time with the Lord, that this is useless. You could start with 10 minutes before your kids get up and spend time with the Lord there um, and sort of contemplate that and come back to that throughout the day. Um ask and allow, I think, in the midst of this, God to stir your affections for Him and to to cast your desires, not for what's right in front of you right now, but for what will be made of this earth at some point in the future, right? When you rest, you're not just taking a break from this like earthly hamster wheel that you run on all the time to like get tasks checked off at work and like, okay, Sunday is the day that we just sort of like plug into the wall and just like get energy for the next week. When you take a Sabbath, it's much more than that. When you rest, it's much more than that. You are investing in eternity in a sense. 
you're getting a small taste of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like when Jesus comes back to earth to wipe every tear from your eye, to heal every sickness, to undo every death. And as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, to make all of the bad things untrue. So that's what I've got today. If y'all have any questions, we've got about five minutes. Or comments or letters to the editor. <laughs> yeah. What are you teaching the junior high kids and how do they respond to that teaching? In terms of rest? Yeah, yeah so actually, uh, last week, and then Warren Fitzpatrick, who does some work with the junior high boys, is over just like 50 feet that way, teaching about rest as well. Um, for junior high students, what that looks like mostly is saying, okay, um, rest allows you, again, to gain some perspective, as Cameron taught last week. It um, sort of takes your eyes off of yourself, right? There are a lot of students today, if you like you know, read some APA studies or something like that, it won't take a lot to be very, very concerned about how, like, anxious our kids are. Um, I, yeah, I worked in an inner city school before I moved here, and students would use the same vocabulary there in terms of, like, their anxiety for, like, where food was going to come, you know, like, when was mom going to be home, stuff like that. Same vocabulary as some of my students here use about performance in school, performance on the football field, right? The pressure is immense. And so I think the practical aspects of rest are what makes the most sense for 7th and 8th graders. On a metacognitive level, that's probably where they sit in terms of like every day spend 10 minutes and pray, right? We teach them how to pray um, with this like Acts method, which is like adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And we find that generally after 10 minutes of sort of like acknowledging who God is and what he can do and does do in your life. A lot of this anxiety um, is not taken away or even really mitigated, but there are some tools there to deal with it in a more fruitful way. And so in terms of working with junior high students and teaching them rest, a lot of it is putting together practical measures that are like, hey, Remember who God is, right? When you like, when you start breathing really fast and your heart starts beating a lot because you got a B on your science test and not an A, and like you're in seventh grade, but like how are you going to get into Dartmouth now? You know, like, um, like in that moment, take a breath, right? Think of, you know, what you know to be true about God, and that God will never leave you or forsake you. He's made this promise to you. Right. Think back to your baptism. You belong to God. And Jesus says that he won't allow any of his people to be plucked out of his hands. Like your biggest problem has already been dealt with on the cross. And so a lot of times there's sort of like an active rest, sort of practical. Does that answer your question? Well... We can call it here. It's uh, probably your kids will be sort of moseying out of class here in a second anyway. So thank you all so much for uh, hanging out. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. 
Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.